Dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. <clears throat> I don't know if you picked up on the theme of the last couple songs that we sang, but it, it spoke of the Lordship of Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus is one of the most prevalent themes throughout Scripture. Whenever the angels proclaimed the announcement of Christ's birth, notice what they said. They appeared, and the scripture says, And the angel of the Lord shone round about them, and they made this proclamation. They said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. For today in the city of David there is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He was Lord, the scripture tells us, from the beginning. In Philippians chapter 2, it said that because of his humility, because of his obedience, that God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess, both in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we've, we've heard this said from the pulpit. We've heard this said from people that we know and that we love, that, that, that you know, Jesus was my savior, but this day I made him Lord of my life. Uh, I hate to break this to you, but you can't make Jesus Lord. God has already done that. He is Lord from the beginning. And so you may recognize his lordship in your life, but it is God who made him Lord. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of John, chapter 15, as we walk through, continue to walk through uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. Uh, we're going to uh, read verses 1 through 11 this morning. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Jesus communicates to his disciples, and he says this I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray. God, we do ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would begin to to prune away all of that which does not honor the Lord, all of that which does not emulate Christ. Lord, this morning may we learn what it means 
to rest, to dwell, to abide in Christ. And God, it is by your, by your miraculous presence in us that we may bear fruit. And we ask this morning, you speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's my prayer that, that as you leave, that you may indeed be empowered, equipped by the Spirit of God to bear fruit. Now, we'll look at what that means to bear fruit because uh, there are uh, many different thoughts, many different uh, applications, many different uh, ideas of what it means to bear fruit. And so we will try and extrapolate from the text what it indeed means to bear fruit. But before we do, I want to remind us of the context of, the, of which we're in. Jesus has spent the first 13 chapters of John preparing his disciples for this moment. He has told them all throughout the Gospel of John, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. He has taught them, he has performed miracles, he has walked with them, he has sent them out, he has, he has spoken to them through the I am statement saying, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am the resurrection and the life. And he has been preparing his disciples for just this moment. And so in John chapter 13, as he washes his feet, as they sit there at the Last Supper, Jesus makes this statement. He says, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Speaking specifically of his cross, of the exaltation upon the cross. And so this is the moment, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus has this long address to his disciples, preparing them for his crucifixion, preparing him for the moment that he's going to leave them and, the God, and God will send the Spirit of God and they will be called upon to be the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so Jesus is preparing them. And so there, there's a few things that are of note in these first few verses. First of all, I want us to notice the constant submission of Christ to the Father. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. Do you see the relationship that Jesus continues to echo and continues to, to communicate to his disciples? That I am willingly placing myself under submission to the father. Now, we have this idea in our culture today that submission somehow means weakness. I think quite the opposite. I think that the scripture teaches us that submission is an aspect of strength. We see that Jesus is God from eternity past to eternity future. That scripture tells us that he is eternal. He has no beginning, he has no end. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal. They're equal in value, they're equal in dignity, they're equal in their essence. They're all 100% God. They're equal in, in all things, yet God, by His grace and by His mercy, has distinguished God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There are three persons, all completely distinct, all completely different, yet one in essence and in being. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus willingly places Himself under the submission of the will of the Father. Now, we know, Scripture teaches us, that all authority has been given unto Christ. And yet, he willingly lays that down. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll see this in just a few moments. 
whenever Jesus makes this statement, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus places himself under the submission of the Father. In John chapter 8, we see Jesus echo this in verse 28. Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this. <clears throat> John chapter 6, verse 38, He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Over and over and over again, we get this idea and, and we get this principle that is taught throughout Scripture that Jesus willingly places himself under submission to the Lordship of the Father. This communicates to us something, church. We, as Christians, we, as the people of God, should willingly submit ourselves to the authority with which God places us under. We have this idea that is, that is innate within us because of our sinful nature. And we see this echoed in our children as they grow up. So you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. If I've heard that once, I've heard it a thousand times. And that is the human condition that we want to rebel. We want to push against the authority that God has placed over us. We want to, to push back against our, our bosses, our teachers, our pastors, our parents, all of the authority that God has placed over us. We want to rebel against that because we don't want anybody telling us what to do. That is the human condition. That is the pride and the sinful rebellion of the human heart. But it's interesting, all throughout Scripture, God commands and God teaches us to submit to the authority that God's placed us under. Interestingly enough, when David, a young man, anointed by God to be the king of Israel, that anointing was authenticated when David, as a young boy, took a sling and a stone and destroyed the enemy of Israel, Goliath of Gath. And all of, Phil, all of the Philistines then cowered before Israel because the God of Israel was moving. And, and David was anointed king. And David was placed under Saul. And he was, he was trained to be this, this king. And then all of a sudden Saul began to realize the threat that David was. And Saul began this, this campaign to kill David. And David then runs for his life. And he's hiding in the mountains. And as he's hiding in the mountains, Saul enters his cave one day, the cave where David is hiding. He enters his cave because nature calls. And he has to go to relieve himself. And David understands. My enemy is standing right there. The, the, the one who's trying to kill me is right there. And, and he is, by every sense of the idea, every sense of the word, he is completely vulnerable. He literally has his pants around his ankles. And what does David do? He walks up, he cuts off a piece of his cloak, and he tells Saul, I could have killed you. Scripture tells us that David would not, would not strike, would not come against the one whom God had anointed and put in authority over him. 
we are taught all throughout Scripture. Submit to the authority. If we will not learn and understand how to submit to the earthly authority in our lives, how on earth will we ever submit to the spiritual authority? How will we ever submit to the Spirit of God? How will we ever submit to God the Father if we don't learn how to submit to the earthly authority? If we can't submit to our supervisors and our bosses and our parents and our teachers and our pastors, how in the world will we be able to submit to the authority, the spiritual authority, if we never learn to submit to the earthly authority? Jesus portrays this as an example. He says, I willingly place myself under the submission of the Father. Secondly, I want us to notice something else. In John chapter 15, between verse 2 and verse 3, there's a transition. Did you notice it? In verse 2, he says this, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. And then in verse 3, we say, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Did y'all see that transition? He goes from third person to second person. He will take the branch. He will prune it. It will bear fruit. All of a sudden, now in verse 3, we transition from third person to second person. It goes from this abstract idea to a very personal. This happens in the Psalms, Psalm 23. The scripture tells us, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, third person. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He anointeth my head with oil. My cup overflows. And then we get to this point, this point in the psalm where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod, your staff comforts me. You see the transition? Whenever there was hardships, whenever there was trial, whenever there was pain, whenever there was difficulty, whenever David needed the Lord, all of a sudden, it went from this abstract idea, this this distant third person idea, to a very personal, you are my shepherd. You restores my soul. You protect me. You guard me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? because there is a personal God who is walking right beside me. And that is what Jesus is communicating in chapter 15. He's talking abstractly that that you are the branches, I'm sorry, that that my father is the vine dresser and I am the vine and and those branches who who don't bear fruit, he's going to cut off and those that do bear fruit, he's going to prune. He's talking very abstractly and then he brings that down and he begins to talk very personally to them. He says, you, you are clean. I am the vine, you are the branches. You see that distinction? You see that transition? And then I want us to understand this, that Jesus in this passage, in these first few verses, and in the rest of this text, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the trials and the hardships that will come. And he understands that these trials and these hardships and these difficulties will be used by God to refine them, to prune them. Why? For what purpose? That they bear more fruit. We have a tendency in our world today to disdain hardship, difficulty, trial. James says it like this in chapter 1, verse 2. My brother, consider it all joy. 
when you encounter various trials and tribulation. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. James says to the disciples that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, that are in the midst of persecution, he says, consider it joy when you are persecuted, when you are beaten, when you are flogged, when you lose your job, when you can't feed your family. Consider it joy whenever you are able to partner yourself with the suffering of Christ. Because in that time, God is refining you. God is using those circumstances and those for fruit. Prune away all of that which doesn't look like Jesus so that you may bear more fruit. But we don't like that because it hurts. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. Whenever I was a kid, my dad uh, believed in discipline. Uh, there was a, uh, there, there's a saying, and, and, and we've probably all said it as parents, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you. I don't know that I really believe that because it hurt me a whole lot. Uh, but my dad believed in discipline. He was absolutely 100% a, a father who, who took to heart the saying in Proverbs that says, if you spare the rod, you hate your child. Well, my dad loved me intensely. And the idea, the idea of discipline, the idea of discipline is for those who are receiving the discipline is, it's painful. It's, it's not fun. It's not enjoyable to think about because we know with discipline comes pain, comes hurt, comes hardship. Whenever our children get their devices taken away because they've been disobedient, are they happy about it? No. Why? Because it's, it's, it's not fun. It's difficult. It's, dis it, it's, it's by the very nature, it's discipline. But we understand as parents that it is good for them to undergo this hardship, this pain, so that they may learn a lesson that is so much greater. The scripture tells us in John chapter 15 that this pruning, that the hardship, he's preparing his disciples for the hardship that's about to come. Now, keep in mind the hardship that's about to come. Every one of his disciples, every one of them, with the exception of John, will be killed, will be martyred. Peter will be crucified upside down. Paul will be beheaded. Mark will have his limbs ripped from his body. The only reason John doesn't die is because they couldn't kill him. They put him in a vat of oil and he just wouldn't die. It wasn't for lack of effort. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the hardship and trials and pain and difficulty that they are about to endure. In the book of Peter, Peter encourages his church during the reign of Nero. He says, he says do not be discouraged. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you as though something strange were happening to them. What he's telling them is the fiery ordeal that is among them is whenever the emperor Nero was taking Christians, covering them in tar, putting them on stakes and lighting them on fire to light the city streets of Rome. See, don't be surprised the fiery ordeal that is among you as though something strange were happening. But 
to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, you will also share in His glory. He's preparing His disciples for the hardships and the trials that's coming their way. So why do we as Christians think in America, 21st century, that, that whenever we undergo a difficulty, whenever we undergo trial, whenever we undergo loss, pain, hardship, that, that we're somehow different. We're somehow special. Jesus told us, he says, there's going to be pruning. There's going to be this, these hardships, trials that refine you. Why? So that you'll bear much fruit. Now, I want us to look at this. The scripture tells us in verse three, <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse four, he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit in and of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, we will see throughout the rest of this passage that the efficacy of the branches, the effectiveness of these branches that are connected to the vine are directly related to the connection Valentine's Day is coming in which they receive. Valentine's Day is coming up in like a week and a half, right? Husbands, Boyfriends, wives, understand. Give your, give your husbands grace and mercy because they may forget. I'm telling you now, husbands, Valentine's Day is in a week and a half. Don't forget. So the floral industry makes its money on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. They make enough money on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day to support them the rest of the year. And what do we do? We go and we buy these flowers and we give them to our Valentine. And these flowers sit on the, the kitchen table or they sit on the desk or they sit on the, the, the counter and they, they're beautiful for about a week. Then they begin to wilt. Then they begin to stink. Why? Because they're not alive. Because they're dead. Oh, they're beautiful for a moment but they have been severed from this very source of their nourishment. Our effectiveness as Christians is directly related to our connection to our source of nourishment. And the scripture tells us in chapter 15 what that source of nourishment is. It is Jesus. It is Christ. Now, I want to elaborate on this for just a moment. Your source of nourishment is absolutely 100%, first and foremost, your personal relationship to Jesus Christ, your personal walk with Christ. But I believe that it is also, it is additionally the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, as we gather as the body, as we gather as believers, the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that there are many members, but there are one body. And all of the members of the body of Christ have different roles. There are some who have, who have different gifts and they, they exercise those gifts and they fulfill different roles. There are some of you who are, who are servants. There are some of you who are teachers. There are some of you who have different gifts and different abilities. And God intends to use you for the benefit of the body of Christ. Isn't it interesting that the scripture calls it the body of Christ? 
And then there's this analogy that Jesus gives the disciples that you need to be connected to Christ. You need to be connected to his body in order that you may be connected to the very source of nourishment. There's a reason why there, as such as the chapter 10, verse 25, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as such as the habit of some. But continue to meet together so that you may be encouraged, exhorted, so that you may be able to receive the benefit of the body of Christ. That you may be nourished, that you may be strengthened. Because as we meet as the body of Christ, we are admonished. We are encouraged. We are called to serve, held accountable. I don't know if you guys remember, I'm sure you do, remember 2020. There was a time from March 15th to about the end of May where the church, Little C Church, could not meet. The government told us that that there's this disease, there's this virus that's going around, and if you meet, then everybody's certainly going to die. And so they disallowed us from being able to gather as the body. And during that period of time, and even even afterwards, there was a tremendous amount of, of emotional and spiritual fallout that, that, that began to to permeate the entire society. There was depression, there was anxiety, there was difficulty, there was hard. The suicide rate went through the roof. Why? Because we are by nature relational social creatures. And God has redeemed us. And as he has redeemed us as believers, he, we are born again. And just like whenever you're born into an earthly family, when you are born again, you are born into a spiritual family. And whenever you are born again, you are encouraged and, and held accountable and loved and supported by that family. And when you're no longer able to be with your family, it creates all sorts of turmoil. I believe that the very source of nourishment is manifested in a very real and practical way when we are connected to the local body. You can bear much fruit. When? When you're connected to the body of Christ. Jesus himself desires the local body of believers to be the very instrument of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. He tells his disciples, as you go, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts chapter 1.8, he says, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The local church is God's intended methodology for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It is God's intended methodology to encourage his people, to strengthen his people, to send his people. The local church is the body of Christ. And the scripture tells us in John chapter 15 that we are to be connected to Jesus. There is no other way that is more applicable than being connected to the local body of believers. Now, I want us to look at verse 5. Because verse 5 
points out a radical contrast between connection to Christ, connection to the, the nourishment, the source of nourishment, and not connection, not being connected to the source of nourishment. Look at verse 5. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I think it's interesting that he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, apart from me, you can do only a little bit. Apart from me, you can do some things, but the things that you do are not really of great value. There in me, if you rest radical contrast between the two things that Jesus says. He says, if you abide in me, if you rest in me, if you dwell in me, if you are connected to the source of, the, the source of nourishment, you can bear much fruit. Not a little fruit, much fruit. And then if you're not connected to the source, if you're not abiding, you're not dwelling, you're not resting, you're not connecting to the source of, of nutrition, then you can bear nothing. Not, you can bear some things that are of little value. It's not what he says. It's either much fruit or nothing. That is a radical contrast. What does this communicate to us, church? It communicates that in Christ and only in Christ, we bear fruit. That means that everything we do in and of ourselves, everything we do that is benevolent, all of the social gospel, all of the things that, that, that we want to do to promote love and justice and, and benevolence, apart from Jesus, it is worth nothing. So, Jesus makes the statement, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Now, I want us to, I want us to look very, very briefly at the idea of abiding. In these 11 verses, that word, abide, shows up eight different times. If, if, if you just read it casually, you'll see abide, 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 abide. It, it, it almost becomes redundant. What does that mean? What is the idea of abiding? The idea of abiding is to dwell, to live, to rest. This idea of abiding is that we are always constantly dependent upon Christ, upon the Holy Spirit, upon the body of Christ. Why is it that Paul says, pray continuously? In Thessalonians, he tells the church, he says, pray without ceasing. Why? Because in our prayers, we acknowledge our dependence upon him. We are always called to be subjecting ourselves to the submission of the Father, that we are calling ourselves to be dependent upon him to abide, to rest, to dwell. Why? Because our very sustenance, our very life depends upon us being dependent upon Him, dwelling within Him, resting in Him, abiding in Him. Now, Jesus makes the statement, I am the vine, this ego I me statement. This is the last of the I am statements. And what is interesting, what is interesting is in this I am statement, Jesus continues this replacement motif that John has begun to, 
that John has begun to pack the gospel of John with. Remember whenever Jesus spoke up and said, I am the bread of life. And the disciple, I'm sorry, the, the, the Pharisees and the multitude began saying, our father gave us bread through Moses. Moses gave us manna. Jesus says, if you ate manna, you'll be hungry the next day. I am the bread of life. I am the replacement for that manna. The woman at the well began to draw water from Jacob's well, and Jesus tells her, I'm living water. I will give you water, and you will never thirst again. Jesus replaces that which sustains her. The idea of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, he replaced David. He was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He was the fulfillment of the shepherd that Israel was looking for. Here, Jesus said, I am the true vine. In the Old Testament, the vine always represented Israel. The people of God always apology that Israel, this political kingdom, was going to be the methodology for which God was going to redeem his people. Jesus makes the statement, I am the vine. Not Israel, not this kingdom, not this earthly political idea. I am the vine. You abide in me, not in this earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. So, we're called to bear fruit. What is fruit? Well, the answer to that is simple, yet difficult. We are called to bear fruit. The scripture teaches us that the fruit of the disciples is to do all that Jesus taught. Oh, okay. Right? Well, it's a good thing that Jesus boiled all this down for us. Look at Matthew chapter 22. A lawyer, expert in the law, came and challenged Jesus and asked him, in verse 36, asked him, they said, which of these is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said this. <clears throat> he said, teacher, which of these is the greatest of all the commandments? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. For this is the greatest and foremost commandments. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So, what is fruit? Love God and love others. Oh, well, that's easy, preacher. Love God and love others. What I find interesting is as Christians in the West, we find it easy to love people who are easy to love. It's very difficult to love people who are hard to love. It's very difficult to love people who continually make mistake after mistake after mistake. It's very difficult to love people who who won't help themselves. We think that God loves those, or God helps those who help themselves. We think somehow that's found in Scripture. It's not. It's easy for us 
to be benevolent and to be kind and to be loving to those who clean up well. But the single mom who has two kids from two different fathers and is pregnant with a third child from a third different father, that's messy. That's ugly. How do we love someone like that? The addict who's been to rehab after rehab after rehab. How do we love someone like that? To bear fruit is to emulate Christ. Jesus showed up to the woman caught in the act of adultery, to the man who was lame at the pool of Bethesda, to the man who was born blind, to the man who was filled with demons and cursing at him. These are the people who Jesus showed up and gave grace to. When Jesus showed up to the religious leaders, to the doctors, to the lawyers, to the prominent businessmen, he called them broods of vipers, whitewashed tombs. To love others as Christ loves often means to get messy. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus communicates verse 34 through 40, and we'll close with this. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you, give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and come visit you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did this to one of these, even to the least of them, you did it unto me. To love others often means that we have to get messy. But it embodies the very love of Christ. To bear fruit is to carry out and live out the teachings of Jesus. What was the teachings of Jesus? Love God and love others. Plain and simple. However, there's a catch. We can only love because He first loved us. We cannot love out of our benevolence. We cannot love out of our goodness. We cannot love because somehow, some way, we just want to. We can only love because God loved us and shed His red, rich, royal blood to redeem us, to call us out of death into life. Only then can we emulate the love of Christ. Will you pray with me? God, it is indeed our desire to bear fruit. It is indeed our desire to love others. God, by your grace and by your mercy, may you fill us with your spirit. 
May we do everything in our power to abide in you, to dwell in you, to stay connected to the body of Christ, to stay connected to the very source of our nourishment, that we may be encouraged, admonished, strengthened. God, may you, by your grace and by your mercy, give us opportunities to love others. May you use this local body of Redeemer to be an instrument of grace to a lost and dying world. The world doesn't need more rules to follow. We need more pictures of Jesus. May you fill us with your spirit that we may bear fruit. And there are those here this morning that want to love, they want to be kind, they want to be Christ-like, but they've never yet trusted Jesus. They've tried to do it on their own, they've tried to be good enough, but your word tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. This morning, if you want to love God and love others, 